think Mike Duffy called them the boys in short pants. And I they're both boys and girls because I've seen them. Women and men. Hello, this is episode 63 of the Boys in Short Pants, the 64th episode. I'm Laura Carboneau, and uh, I am not actually in uh, the rest of this episode because I was away on unavoidable travel when it was recorded. Uh, but this week, Etienne Renville, uh, Rachel Aiello from CTV, and Dylan Robertson of the Winnipeg Free Press, Win- Winnipeg Free Press, I'll get that eventually, um, convened to discuss both uh, sort of an end-of-year wrap-up and uh, do some parliamentary trivia. Uh, because Etienne is really, really good with computers, uh, I had to put a lot of work into making this episode listenable. Uh, I think it came out pretty good in the end. Uh, if it didn't, please do feel free to yell at Etienne on Twitter and in real life if you happen to see him. Uh, it is well-deserved. Uh, and with all of that said, uh, thank you for everyone who's been recording or listening to uh, to this show, uh, well, this year especially, and also since the beginning, if you have been. Uh, we really appreciate it. This is a, a really, this is a passion project for us that, that we do because it's fun. Uh, we, we don't monetize it in any way, so... It's really just because we, we like doing it, and the fact that people enjoy it is uh, is really gratifying. So thank you to everyone who's been listening. Uh, I hope you continue to enjoy the show in the new year. Uh, this will be our last episode of the of the year, and we'll get together in the uh, beginning of 2019 to discuss uh, a longer year-end review as well as uh, do some other episodes. Uh, so thanks again, and enjoy the show. I don't even know the episode number, to be honest. Uh, I'll put that in afterwards, but I am joined by uh, Dylan Robertson of the Winnipeg Free Press and Rachel Laurent coached me on how to say this, a yellow, a yellow of now CTV. The last time you were here, it was the Hill Times. Uh, You've been there, what, about a year now? A year and a half. A year and a half. And you're enjoying it? Yeah, fast paced. There's no, there's no other answer you could have given, frankly. You can say, no, here are my grievances with my employer. Definitely not have none of those. (laughs) So this is our, I'm going to call it our holiday episode. um, Because I don't know if it was a holiday the last time you were here, but the last time you were here. I think. Was it summer? Was when we did our parliamentary trivia. And so in light of you being here again and center block closing down, we will end the episode with a little bit of parliamentary trivia and see uh, how Dylan is at parliamentary trivia this time. It'll be pretty bad. <laughs> I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Do I get to quiz you guys about Winnipeg? I know that Winnipeg uh, is in Manitoba, and Manitoba has the highest speeding tickets in Canada. Um, don't ask me how I found that out, but they're horrible. And the Human Rights Museum is there, and that's about it. Is it true about the doors not being locked in Churchill so that people can escape into the pol- uh, from polar bears into cars? Yes, uh, I actually checked in the parking lot of the hotel. <laughs> I feel like we're going a bit off track, but yeah, you um, you don't close your car door even if you're in the restaurant because it's a good shelter for when a polar bear is going to come, but they will break through the window and get at you, they warn you, when you get <laughs> into the car. So it's very uh, friendly if, Manitoba. <laughs> if there was ever a topic to go off track on, yeah. I feel like Churchill would probably be the most fitting. Off track. That was a terrible joke. <laughs> not, not many people will get that joke, but I think that's in reference to Dylan's work on Omnitracks and the final railroad to northern Manitoba. Yeah. That was one of your big projects this year? Yes, or this uh, session? I, I mean, not to derail the whole conversation. It, doesn't, it, always, it always gets derailed. It's fine. We can start with this. Oh, God. Uh, the deal got signed in uh, late August, and um, the train started coming in and um, now we're just watching to see if they can get back on track. Uh, there's a lot of Winnipeg businesses that exported absolutely none of it through there. Um, there's an economic interest, there's uh, grain exporting. Um, I feel like uh, it, it'll be interesting to track it. I don't know if it fits in with your podcast that much, but it, it's been an interesting thing to see like a federal issue have a, a profound impact on how People across the province have felt. Do you want to give me a little bit more of a primer on the background of this? That would make more sense. <laughs> uh, the railway to Churchill was built in the 30s. Uh, it uh, is a little curious in that it sneaks into Saskatchewan and it goes towards York Factory, the original sort of, well, you could argue, original Hudson Bay Company settlement. And then it makes a 90 degree turn north because they realized that they couldn't put 
large boats there. So right before the Great Depression hit, they had this uh, grain terminal on Hudson Bay, uh, right near Nunavut, that uh, is primarily used to ship grain out. Um, it's on permafrost, which is not so perma anymore with the changes in the climate patterns. Naturally. And, um, the American company that's owned it since the 90s um, was sort of um, cutting back more, especially after the wheat board got shuttered, because there was no incentive to really use it for grain, and Thunder Bay and Vancouver and Montreal offered better options. And then in May 2017, there was a washout, um, partially due to climate patterns, uh, it seems pretty obvious, and um, they the, the company said they weren't going to fix it, it's not economically viable, and it was a standoff with Ottawa, and, you know, it went through um, May 2017 until August 2018, when they signed the deal, and it wasn't really evident that they'd fix it this year until, like, the very last minute, like, they were rushing the game. For the yeah. Week. We still don't know what the payout was. Um, if there was a payout, like, what was the deal with Omnitrax? It seems like the feds were under amount of pressure to get it done um and so it's a massive relief to people there uh but there's a lot of remaining questions about how much was expended on this and um how much for example shipping business went to montreal um, and that is why winnipeg has one intrepid parliamentary bureau chief who is uh on the story right I'd, I'd like to argue for my, the existence <laughs> of uh, one of the, the three regional correspondents that we have on the Hill. Um, but it, it is interesting. Like, I, I often cover stories that no one else is really following. I'm the annoying one in the scrums asking about... Yelling about Manitoba. But Minister, what about Winnipeg? <laughs> what about Math? Win Winnipeg. <laughs> Minister. Inaudible. Yeah, inaudible. <laughs> Constantly inaudible. Uh, Rachel is uh, much more broadcast-minded and is articulate. And uh, it's a national scope. <laughs> yeah, well, I think it's, from my perspective, it's still really nice to see that there are people who are covering regional issues because it's so valuable. And those people in those meetings are getting something very hyper-specific. I mean, they've got someone specifically focused on what matters to them. And as much as we try in the National Bureau to think about all of the regions, you do have to kind of come at it from as if you're writing for someone in every province and every city. So you have a bit more of a general, broad look at things. So it's nice to know that there are still people around, uh, fewer than there should be, I think, but still some who are able to offer that to people in various regions. So it makes me feel a little better when I'm covering the broad national thing to know that someone is still there looking at it from a micro perspective. So Dylan, you referenced there being three remaining regional correspondents. Who are the three or what are the three regions that are represented? So Adam Huris uh, writes for the Telegraph Journal in New Brunswick, which is the, also Brunswick News as the Wire. Uh, and uh, Andrea Gunn writes for the Halifax Chronicle Herald. So the three of us sit near each other. Um, and I, I don't think any province is lesser than any other, but I think these are three provinces that have very peculiar histories and how they joined Confederation. And yeah. Yeah, I think it's, yeah, it's interesting to note that they're among, I mean, PI is not in there, so it's not the smallest province, but they're on the smaller side of things. Like, it's not Alberta, it's not BC, it's not Ontario or Quebec that have still the hyper-regional uh, focus, because I think a lot more of their issues come up in sort of the daily ebb and flow, but it's sort of uh, journalists acting as advocates for their regions um, in terms of driving some sort of federal coverage for Manitoba, New Brunswick, Nova Scotia. And I think it helps, too, because they are the ones who kind of elbows up and get in there a little bit more because we see that the provinces of Alberta, BC and Ontario and Quebec often don't have time, have a hard time sh shoving their elbow in there and making sure their issues are federal national issues. And we've seen that I think probably more in the last session sitting than uh, recent with the pipelines and then a lot of the struggles between the Ontario government and the federal government. And Quebec, of course, always is up there and making sure that their regional issues are top of mind. And it's advantageous for the federal government to care about these provinces more because there are more seats in those provinces. So there is a bit more of an incentive for them to make them national uh, issues, whereas those smaller places do benefit from having someone still being able to raise them. Otherwise, arguably, I think a lot of the issues could get overshadowed by the pipeline wars or the francophony, you know, things like that. Yeah, I, I think that's perfectly fair. To transition a little bit from Dylan's area of expertise to Rachel's, 
Um, one of the conversations I wanted to have today was sort of a background look back, whatever you want to call it, on the session of par or rather the sitting. I hate this technical nonsense, but the sitting of parliament yeah. that we've just completed, um, the House of Commons and the Senate rose on Thursday. On Thursday. Um, and do not resume until late January or mid-February, depending on which. Yeah, uh, so the House will be back, I think it's January 28th, and the Senate committees will start sitting around that time as well, but the full actual Senate isn't going to resume sitting until February 19th. Uh, that's due to some audio issues in the new Senate chamber. And of course, when they all come back, they'll be in their new digs. Center block is closing. Um, so it was a it was a, a lot more sentimental kind of wrap up, I thought, this month and this uh, week than in past. And it was nice to have that because the move was supposed to happen in the summer. Uh, and we all kind of ran to the end of the session without really a lot of time to stop and think. So it was kind of nice to find out that we were going to actually have a little bit more time to look around, take photos and say those final farewells. Um, and I think that did kind of end up overshadowing in the last few days everyone was feeling a little bit more sentimental and yeah. it wasn't quite the procedural wrangling that you usually see in the last few days of a, a sitting. So that was I guess, nice for some. So one of the things I think maybe attributed to that was I was following a lot of different pieces of legislation just before the house and the Senate rose, but virtually all of it was in the Senate. So I tried to put a, uh, put together for the purposes of this podcast, a list of sort of the priority legislation for the government mm. And of the nine bills I deemed priority, not including things like BIA 2, um, virtually all of it is in the Senate, and the vast majority of it was at second reading, virtually the entire sitting, yeah. um, and then passed through to committee in the final week. Um, bills that I'm thinking of include C-55, um, which is Marine Protected Areas, 59, which is the government's changes to Anti-Terrorism Act, also known as C-51, yeah. Anti-Terrorism Act 2015, let us let us not forget. Uh, 68, the changes to the Fisheries Act was also referred to Fisheries and Oceans Committee at the very last minute. Uh, 69, the infamous... The, probably the most contentious bill moving through, and that is uh, something to be said because the next bill you're about to say is C-71, and that is the uh, gun reform legislation, yes. which I think a lot of people thought was going to be the hottest topic. But uh, who knew that environmental regulations were going to be um, the talk of the town? Yeah, environmental regulations have proved, um, I guess, the dark horse initially, because when the bill came out, it was an incredibly complex bill, um, overhauling. And so it was a bit of a slow burn initially. People weren't sure how to react when you're looking at hundreds of pages and trying to figure out what, what this will mean for you, your industry. Um, I think it took a lot of months for this to really build steam. And now there are protests in Alberta and yeah. Western separatism is alive and well again. Yeah. Provincial cabinet ministers coming to town to lobby senators about the bill. It's uh, you don't see that with every piece of legislation. And uh, there are certain issues that I think we all think are a bit more hot button and um, emotional than this. I'm personally surprised to see how, um, engaged and a lot of just people commenting on Twitter even are mentioning this bill and they probably don't know all of the ins and outs of it, but they know enough based off of what they're hearing that um, either it's it's a good thing or it's problematic depending on who you ask. Um, but it's going to be an interesting one to watch because of the new nature of the Senate. We've saw in the last sitting uh, it go independent majority. Uh, and now the Conservatives don't have the numbers that they did have in the earlier years of this parliament, where they did have the ability to flex their muscle a little bit more. Uh, but it's the other joy of the Independent Senate is that they're not all uh, like-minded or, or thinking in the same way. Sometimes they do, um, but not always. And it'll be interesting to see, for me, the regional breakdown of where the support for this bill lies. Yeah, have either of you been following Senator Paula Simons? Yes, yeah. I find it so fascinating to get to see live tweeting from a senator in the way that is reporter-minded. Like, we know that there are senators who are very active on Twitter the same way there are a lot of MPs who are, um, but they're doing it from their, their party position, and she doesn't have one. Uh, and so it was, what was the recent legislation where they were live? She was doing a full live tweet session. So, Canada Post. Uh, Canada Post. Yeah. yeah. It was just, like, a very interesting thing to be able to follow and watch from and kind of see she's going through this she's a fairly new senator uh experiencing this and coming at it still with that bit of a reporter brain kind of interesting 
I think as well, like um, her interview recently with uh, Breckenridge. Um, Rob Breckenridge. Yeah. yeah. In Alberta, like she posted that and it was just so incongruous. Um, you know, a senator on an AM talk radio show. Uh, and also just for her to, to break down, like it was about Bill C-69. And so she yeah. was clarifying like what the role of the committees were. And I thought there was a real sort of public interest there, whether you know, you agree with everything she's saying or not, like, you know, she was explaining how it actually works with the Senate and to have that kind of interest, I think, shows the interest in her as a senator, but also how weird Bill C-69 is and that it's, you know, Yeah, yeah the additional context here is that uh, Paula Simons is an Alberta senator, so representing Alberta on 69 is proving to be, you know, a, an interesting position to be on. Um, but to your point, the the radical sort of transparency she's providing. I was trying to follow. Um, there was a in-camera committee uh, right on the last day the Senate was open where I think it's ENEV, was, which is the committee that 69 has been referred to, was in-camera meeting about sort of committee business is usually all you get out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and she was tweeting from that, like, you know, we're in the midst of making the decision about whether we're going to travel, when we're going to come back, all of these things that you typically don't see come out of in camera. Definitely not. Um, so it, it proved really interesting. And I mean, for my purposes, very useful because, you know, the more you know. Absolutely. And I think it kind of is a good opportunity to raise the veil of mystery sometimes on what the Senate does. And if this bill does have the public's attention and is seized interest. It's a great opportunity to try to do, I think, what she is trying to do and explain how the Senate works and some of the processes and make it a bit more um, digestible and relatable. And I, I mean, if this is a bill to do it, I think that's a, it's a good thing. And I'm all for having very intelligent policy conversations about the substance of the bill, but all of the kind of side effects of seeing something that's kind of raised attention in this way uh, is also a positive. I think it's a totally different tract than um, Senator Mary Lou McFedrin, who is a Manitoban. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Always on brand. Yeah. Uh, who kind of, it was about a different topic, though, about expenses and transparency. And it's both Senator Simons and McFedrin, who I'm really curious are in the next year as people who aren't in a leadership position and are sort of pushing from, it's not the grassroots, you know, they're senators. They're, they're trying to push for more transparency in institutions where you do get the pushback. I mean, even tweeting, you know, Senator Kasakos was not thrilled with some of the characterizations or very minor mistakes, which Rachel and I know more so me, like you make mistakes when you tweet. This isn't the published final word, um, but Rachel's much more prudent than I am. There have been a few times that I've served as an informal copy editor. Um, but it's just on legislation because I look at the letters of the bill and I know immediately he that's not the fisheries bill. Uh, and I, that's not Romeo LeBlanc's, but Yeah, I had a, I had a, I had a fun time in the first minute campaign. But uh, in any case, one of the things about C69 that I'm also sort of watching for is the regional versus minority interests. You know, those are the two main snags that the Senate can hit on things. And I think with this, some of the senators have told me they're really interested in the broader sort of role of minorities when it comes to these bills, especially Indigenous consultation. Um, but then the flip side is the regional question. Right now it's framed as Alberta. Um, there's a lot of um, concerns that Premier Pallister is raising in Manitoba about flood channel outlets, which had a lot of federal support. And we're already seeing the consultation process kind of go longer and broader than people had expected. Um, and so I think it is an issue that can resonate in different parts of the country for different things. It's not exclusively like the pipeline issue. Um, I think it has the potential to get more broad in its criticism um, in different ways in different places, even the East Coast. I think it's also a bill that we won't be finished talking about when it passes this parliament, because if it is going to have the impacts that some of the critics say in terms of uh, halting new projects and developing new things, it'll be kind of, unless it is significantly amended between now and then, it will be, the proof will be in the pudding for their criticism if once this bill is implemented and there is a new proposed development that is stymied by the legislation, then it would be fodder to be opened up and repealed or tweaked by a, a future government who isn't as into it as this current one is. 
So one of the how you led that was in saying when this bill passes the parliament by end of session. There is a majority government. Yes, but the Senate dynamic is still up in the air, right? Um, so while there is a majority government in the House, there is the ISG dynamic um, in the Senate, and we've had harder pushing for something like the is it the Salisbury Doctrine, um, where senators do not obstruct or significantly amend mm -hmm. government legislation mm -hmm. that they quote unquote have a mandate for and that they campaigned on which I think this would qualify as. Um, but without a doubt, the conservative minority, which is sitting around 30-some-odd senators, um, is likely to push as hard as possible. And you don't often see time allocation used um, in the Senate. Um, in your mind, there doesn't seem to be any doubt that this bill will pass before the end of session? I definitely wouldn't say there isn't any doubt. I think with any bill in this current Senate, you, it, there is no foregone conclusion. I think it's absolutely um, not a guarantee, just like any other piece of legislation. But uh, there have been times in the past where there has been a question of, is this bill going to pass the Senate? How is it going to get there? There has been significant um, pushback or resistance to other pieces of legislation. And uh, sometimes it's something else comes up and it kind of goes in the back burner and then it just goes through. Or we are all there late watching it down to the final moment. Um, but at the end of the day, so far, uh, any time that has come up, and maybe this one will be a little different, a little bit more pushback, uh, but to date, we haven't seen the Senate completely stymie a bill. There's been back and forth over budgets and cannabis. We saw a good amount of yeah. uh, tension over and questions of whether this was going to pass. Uh, so it, it's possible that there it could be a different story this time, but if we're just going off of um, pattern in this parliament, I would say it'll likely get through. I sort of see Bill S3 as instructive. The only thing is that it didn't have a lot of scrutiny. This was the result of a court ruling on uh, sexual discrimination in the lineage provisions of the Indian Act, and uh, the government wanted to bridge it up to the date of the actual uh, court case, the person involved, the plaintiff, uh, and there was push to get it further, and it was led by uh, Trudeau-appointed senators, uh, two were from Manitoba, but, you know, it, it, it really went to that question of the Senate's role for minorities. And um, what you ended up seeing was a consultation process that was a lot more specific and a lot broader than what the minister had first intended. And you could argue that was a collaborative approach with the other players. But it was, you know, they, they were looking at ping-ponging it. They were looking at doing... Um, full conference, like pulling out these provisions from yeah. the 1940s. And these are senators who take their job very seriously, and a lot of them don't have as much procedural experience as some of the old guard, but aren't afraid to sort of invoke these sorts of things. And so I think with C-69, I'm, I'm kind of expecting it to go the same way, where it passes. In this case, there was a court deadline that, you know, they had to push. There isn't really the same with this, but it effectively it is the election. Yeah, I think it'll probably go right up to the, the end um, with some sort of a, a, a carrot for the senators um, in a way that, like, the postal bill, I don't see it as having the same, like, that was a bit weaker, but it didn't speak to the, the bedrock of how the Senate sees itself. There was a constitutional question that Senator Sinclair had raised, but I think C9 is going to echo S3. Yeah, S S3 is an interesting one because it's, I think at this point in our collective parliamentary memories, it's all but forgotten um, because it was very early on in this session. Um, but no, it's it's when talking about procedure in this, uh, in this session and with the ISG, it is perhaps the most instructive example. Um, the other one, which is perhaps more cited, um, but a little bit weaker of a case is, I think it's 49, which was the Transportation Modernization Act, which of course went back and forth twice, the last bill to have done that in a decade or so. Um, and then the next example sort of in the list falls to 45, which they went back and forth, but they ran out of runway, so they folded on pretty quickly because they wanted to go on summer vacation. Right. Well, and keep in mind, too, it'll depend on the timing because C-69 and C-71, the gun reform legislation, are in two different committees. So timing-wise, they could end up back before the whole Senate chamber 
uh, around the same time. And then if the conservative senators uh, are in a position where they're going to have to try to decide which one of those two bills they are going to kind of put their political capital behind, uh, we could see one of them, which I think for a while we thought C-71 was going to be the one that really gets the pushback. Uh, they might have to decide which one they're going to uh, use their, their powers to um, stymie or to delay or to ask serious questions the government on. I'm not sure that there is going to be enough time, depending on when they both get through the committee process, to do that on both. One of the other, I mean, one of the interesting wrinkles with 71 is that it's been referred to SECTI, um, which, of course, is the exact same bill that 59, which is the updates to C-51, for those keeping track, has been referred to. So SECTI is now in the position of deciding the order of study between uh, firearms legislation that will be opposed by conservatives, but is the likely to be the only firearms uh, piece that the liberals get done in four years. Or 59, which is the promised changes to C-51, um, which, of course, is was a significant bill when it was promised, yeah. um, but it's been on the back burner and sort of fallen out of the window over the last few years. Not a lot of people are talking about national security right now. Yeah, well, it's in, true. They could decide sense. to do that one first and then have uh, the runway for C-69 back into the whole Senate, Senate chamber and go through that push get that done, and then get to C-71, and then do that. So that is an yeah. interesting point. They could uh, time it out that way. Um, we'll see. I'm sure they're all thinking about this all holiday long. <laughs> I think it's also maybe in their advantage, too, because it is an issue that polarizes a lot. We saw that with the polling that came out around 71. So I wouldn't be surprised if they wanted to keep it till right before the vote in a way that I don't think C-69 is productively polarizing for the party. No, it's actively a detriment to them at this point, I think is, I think it's fair to say. Um, legislation to watch, um, or actually let's talk about what re received royal assent uh, just before the buzzer very quickly. Um, so it actually wasn't a ton of interesting bills. Uh, 47. And well, if you count C86, there was like seven bills in one, so. Yeah, yeah, 86, well, <laughs> true, true. 86 being BIA 2, which of course is, you know, 900 pages of... Yeah, the biggest budget implementation bill in, I'd say, a recent memory for sure, and probably uh, maybe even ever. I'm not certain on that. I tried to confirm that, and I don't think I was conclusive in that. I think there has been one other bill I think that it, was it longer. says enough to say it's bigger than any Harper budget implementation bill. Yeah, quite possibly. So 47... Act to amend the Exports-Imports Permit Act, pretty routine stuff. 86 that you referred to, 90, which is a money bill, uh, 51, which is the criminal code and the justice reforms. That is a, you know, a reasonably significant, and it's one of the Liberals' two major justice reform bills, I'd say. Yeah, this one was one where they had kind of uh, tucked together a few different pieces of legislation that they couldn't get through, kind of all under the vein of cleaning up the criminal code, Chris well, but I, I would note one of the ones we ridiculed at one point was the uh, fraudulent practice of witchcraft, which there was a recent charge in Canada on the fraudulent practice of witchcraft before it disappeared. So maybe not so vestigial after all. Um, 21, Act to Amend the Customs Act. Again, not very interesting. And then 76, which is the Elections Modernization Act, yeah. um, which is, of course, a bill a lot of people were watching on the basis that Elections Canada needs some runway to set up the next election. Yeah, so we're now into the runway of the next election is within the next year. And uh, if you were watching CPD's question period Sunday morning, you would know of course. that Mr. Trudeau said that the election is going to be held on time and not early. So we're looking at October 21st, 2019. Uh, so that is now when Elections Canada needs to have these rules in place for. And there was some question over whether uh, even passing it now was going to give them enough time to do that. Um, because it does make some considerable changes to the way Elections Canada has to kind of govern themselves. There's rules about ballots and polling places, uh, but then there's also kind of the bigger issue of oversight for foreign interference, foreign spending in elections. Um, and so it'll be interesting to see how it goes. It's kind of one of those things that, like, we won't really know until the next election happens and uh, how big of an issue foreign interference is going to be. Uh, of course, this is also critics would say not the electoral reform that the Liberal government promised. We were supposed to be having the next election under a different 
electoral system altogether. <laughs> uh, so that's not happening. This is um, less uh, dramatic changes. I think a lot of it is uh, repealing proper legislation about elections, but also kind of looking forward and uh, we're in this new digital foreign space and how are we going to account for things like fake news, uh, foreign interference, uh, even interference within our own country. Yeah, the, the third party question, of course, has been yeah. up again recently with all the Ontario Proud stuff and then all the different groups. Right. And then the other question that wasn't answered with this bill was the privacy thing, having more uh, privacy for, for political parties to uh, be a bit more transparent with what they do with uh, voters' data. Uh, and that was something that this government seemed hesitant to do. Uh, so we'll see how that goes uh, in the next race. But for now, it's kind of an Elections Canada's hands to start implementing this and, and get the ball rolling on changing up the system in a little bit of a way for 2019. And Elections Canada seems quite happy to have the... Uh, that did cause some issues <laughs> the bill pass. Some, some conservatives on social media I saw this morning who were not thrilled with that message. And I think some people were saying, well, um, there are a lot of the recommendations were things that previous uh, commissioners of Elections Canada had recommended. So these are, it would be like saying the boss of whoever has been calling for these changes for years and they weren't done. And uh, finally they were, and I don't necessarily think that is a partisan statement. It's just, um, it's like saying we need a new lock on the door and it doesn't get fixed and there's finally a lock on the door and you're happy about that. Um, but of course there are other parts into the bill that I wouldn't necessarily say any department should say they're pleased with, but I think it uh, turned into a bit more of a hot potato than it necessarily uh, needed to be. Yeah. It's, it's always interesting when, I, it's it's always a tense position for departments about how to respond to upcoming legislation. RCMP, in cases, has been dinged mm -hmm. for being a little too eager um, for putting you know instructions on the website before a bill has actually become law. Has uh, Rob ruled on that yet? They were studying the matter. They were, and I actually don't know what's come of it. They sort of go away, and you forget about them, and you need some. Except not Proc. We told you to look into all of them. <laughs> But it was underway on track, so we knew it was, <laughs> you know, it, it wasn't proceeding with talent. Or uh, no longer being pursued. No longer being pursued. Yeah. No one has ever been misled by results.gc.ca, so. Um, the, la the last thing I draw our attention to before we switch our focus to the trivia element of the day um, is anticipated upcoming legislation. Um, so we right now we have a lot of legislation in the Senate. We don't have a lot of really important substantive legislation in the House of Commons, um, which leaves a bit of a window for the government to introduce legislation. At this point, maybe the legislation won't get passed. Um, their priority legislation certainly still has enough leeway too. Um, but there will be a certain amount of putting things, quote unquote, in the window, bills that they want to introduce and that they'll take up again um, afterwards. Yeah. By my count, I have four bills, one being NAFTA, the NAFTA enabling legislation. Um, they just tabled the text of the treaty this past week, uh, which triggers the 21-day window required under our treaties, obligations, whatever. Um, but the NAFTA enabling legislation might not follow for until spring-ish. Uh, there's the Indigenous Rights Framework that Bennett apparently is leading. Yeah. Um, and then there's ch Indigenous Child Welfare Services, the promise that Philpott made might be in the same bill. Mm -hmm. Were you following that one closely? Following both, and I don't think that they'll be in the same bill, but I, I do think of them as hand in hand. And I almost think CFS will, child welfare will sort of um, take over from it. The, the framework had so many um, issues, especially among First Nations chiefs. And we saw even at the CFS announcement, like between the, the Métis president and the national chief for the AFN, like there was some jostling over he said you know we we have to get the framework through and the the national chief was like actually no we don't need that legislation at all um and so i think the government's in a bit of a tight spot on whether they want to split it and proceed and make one group happy and tell the other we're gonna go with this one at your pace i think the cfs is kind of the first major um they don't want to say downloading they say uh, getting people up from under the Indian Act or, you know, uh, drawing up uh, jurisdiction. Um, it's, a, it's a terrible topic. It has really profound impacts on Indigenous people, the three major groups. 
Um, and I think this is a real test for this government. They've got so much goodwill with this legislation in a way that you don't normally see. They have to take it to the provinces. That'll be an interesting sort of jostle. I think some of them are happy to get child welfare out of their hands, um, but it's the first major sort of, we're putting this into your hands in a way that we haven't seen before. And I think a lot of people, you know, the AFM chiefs meeting, they were more interested in seeing how is this going to go? Because it means so much on a deeper level. Yeah. And I think even electorally in terms of the reserves, like this is something that the, the chiefs care a lot about. And I think even the grassroots do. And a lot of these issues split along those lines and they benefit different parties in different ways. Um, so this is like a huge one for provinces like Manitoba. <laughs> There are two other pieces of legislation that we are waiting for. Uh, so Ralph Goodell has promised to bring in a piece of legislation to implement a pardons process for people with past cannabis possession records. Yeah. Uh, he had said he had hoped to do that in 2018, and that didn't happen. So uh, it's possible that is quite soon going to be in the works, and we'll see that sooner rather than later. Uh, and that is one. And the other one is uh, Trudeau said in an interview with Canadian Press this weekend that uh, he is hoping to... Uh, bring forward legislation to solidify some of his changes to the Senate, kind of uh, anchor in that independence, um, because Andrew Scheer has said that he would be interested in appointing uh, conservative sen senators if he was to be prime minister. Uh, so we'll see if uh, that one gets through. It would be a very interesting conversation for the Senate to have about that particular piece of legislation. Uh, and then, of course, there's going to be at least one more budget. Uh, yeah. And if pattern follows, they've done two BIAs for every budget they've done so far. So um, usually the, the pre-election budget, there's a lot of announcements in it, maybe not so many things that actually need implementing currently, uh, kind of more future-looking promises. So we'll see if that is going to be one or two more pieces of legislation they'll have to get through. So of the ones you just mentioned, the one I think that's really interesting is the changes to the Parliament of Canada Act that Trudeau discussed mm -hmm. in relation to, quote-unquote, cementing the changes to the independent Senate that he made. Um, as, of course, everyone knows, it's virtually impossible for a current government to bind a future government. It just means you have to change the law eventually. Um, but more importantly, so, I mean, he can change the Senate dynamics a little bit, change how ISG is funded, things along those lines. Um, but more interestingly than that, with the appointment of all 100 or with all 105 uh, Senate seats now being full, the changes to the Senate have more or less been, like the die has been cast for 10, 15. Right, the, whenever it'll the next be, person is going to retire, but then it's going to be one after the other, but it's it's one-offs. It's not like we're going to have a batch. So it'll be every few years, whoever is the prime minister will have a chance to appoint someone. So yes, it's not like they're going to be able to reverse and all of a sudden in four years have a completely different looking yeah, Trudeau had a really unique opportunity because Harper stopped appointing senators, right? Which left this huge pool of vacancies yeah. um, that Trudeau has gone on to fill with ISG senators. Um, but for Scheer, if he were to serve, let's say, four years, he'd have a handful of Senate appointments and not enough, maybe enough to uh, keep the conservative Senate block at its present size, yeah. but likely not much more than that. Um, that it'll be quite a while before the Senate dynamics change significantly. Yeah, it'll be fascinating to see what it will look like uh, eventually when there's a conservative government again and how a Senate would, um, who I think a lot of the current conservative senators would think that this current batch of ISG are liberal-minded. Uh, so it'll be very interesting to see if that is put to the test and we actually can tangibly see that a little bit differently when uh, there is conservative legislation moving through the upper chamber. Yeah, very fair, very interesting. All right, so round two today is uh, parliamentary trivia-ish. I think it's mostly mostly parliamentary. Um, let's start with center blocky questions. How do we answer? You, you just answer. You, you just we're we're not going to make this too formal. There's there's so no this dinger. This is what a scrum is like for anyone. <laughs> yeah. We have our elbows up. You can't see, but uh, maybe you're perched and ready. So. Center block, everyone was doing a final tour of it this week, uh, you know, sinking those memories. Um, let's talk about portraits. Um, which PM's painting features them addressing the House of Commons? Uh, 
I can see it, and his name, his first name starts with a T? No. A T. His last name starts with a C. But, <laughs> no. Okay. Your turn. <laughs> Wait, I can picture it. Like, I, I, no. Um, it's not Clark. It's Clark? It is. It's Clark. Clark. I'm saying it with her. It is. It is Joe Clark. She, Joe Clark. The, the C was correct there. Um, so apparently there's no time frame for which a patron, uh, portrait must be painted after an MP lives, or a prime minister leaves office, rather. Um, Joe Clark apparently held out on his portrait being painted because he still had aspirations of becoming PM again. And you only get one, so he didn't want to uh, blow it too early. Next question. Apparently there is one secret door slash passageway in Parliament. Where is it? Just one? Just one. In center block. For who? Well, that would give it away, wouldn't it? Would it be from like, the, the Prime, Prime Minister's, Minister's office. office? No. The Speaker's office? No. Sergeant of Arms office. The railway room. No the and room. no. It is an office of a sort of member. You, you've knocked most of them off the list of like... House Leader's Office? No, op Opposition Leader's Office. Uh, because apparently the legend is that Mackenzie King, um, he didn't have a lot of security and people used to wander into his lobby. And so he needed a way to sneak down the back way and avoid them. Um, and when Trudeau moves to West Block, his new office in West Block will have its own secret passageway. Um, this one was from Alexander McKenzie, who also had it installed so he could avoid unwanted guests in the proverbial lobby of his office. There's a lot of that in this block. For the viewers at home. <laughs> <laughs> um, this, this is actually just a genuine question. Have either, have either of you heard of the, like, glass soda machine in Parliament? Yeah, I've had a Coke out of the Coke machine. Where the hell is it? So, it's in the sub-basement. Okay, that's... Is that different than just the regular basement? Yes. We're talking so like you, first floor. Yeah, so I, you have to get into a, like, service elevator in order to access it. So it is, like, down under where they, I think they bring in the stuff for the cafeteria. Sure. Um, a lot of boxes. It was a very late night, midnight fitting in which I discovered said Coke machine. Okay. You've never had the delight of a glass bottle of Coke, eh? No, I the various vending machines there. Some of them are uh, old Emmanuel Christie pranks. <laughs> Hell, the more you know. Okay, this is this is a pretty classic uh, parliamentary trivia question. What is a Hansard? It is the recorded transcript of the day in Parliament. Well, yes, you're right. That's not. I, I should have been more clear. What's the origin of the term Hansard? Where Where does Hansard come from? England. <laughs> Would you like to elaborate on that? No. <laughs> so it's the name of the first printer of Hansards, uh, Thomas Curson Hansard, uh, who was the first official printer to the Parliament of Westminster. That is pretty cool. So fun fact. Dylan, this is a very you-specific question. Because of your uh, little feature in the Hill Times where you were talking about the hot room. Yes. Um, do you care to explain briefly what the hot room is? The hot room is the press gallery offices on Center Block. It comes with, uh, I'd say, about 15 or 12 desks that uh, are open for members of the press gallery to claim. Sometimes there's a waiting list. There's a room in the back that's really fancy. It's one of the nicest rooms in Parliament. They do uh, sit down interviews for TV there. Um, you just know that there were men and only men smoking cigars, <laughs> saying terribly politically incorrect things, you know, ages ago. Um, but the actual offices are pretty standard kind of desks. And then the pool microphones that, you know, are used to capture the audio and post it on a private website for the press gallery members. If we miss something in the scrum, like, they operate out of that room. It's called the hot room. I heard it was because there was a speaker, I think it was, who... Maybe Rachel knows this. My understanding is it's to the reference of, like, the microphone is hot. Mm. So, like, if you were in there speaking with anyone in the hot room. Where everything is. On the record. Yeah. If you ask people who were on the hill for long enough, that wasn't necessarily the 
case because after a certain deadline file came, you were chatting and drinking in there with whoever else was still on the hill. So maybe not. That could just be me thinking mm-hmm. that's the case. Have, have you spent much time in the hot room? No, I haven't actually. I have um, visited friends there, but uh, it's an interesting dynamic because you are in an open air space sharing desks next to your competitors. So you're sitting next to colleagues from other organizations and they can hear you on the phone having your conversation. There are some quieter private rooms you can go into, um, but I've always found that fascinating and it kind of speaks to the collegiality within the press gallery to be able to do that um, and have uh, that respected, I think, for the most part, your conversations and everyone else's. Uh, but no, I did never spend a lot of time working out of the hot room. I've uh, been lucky enough to always have offices just right off of Parliament Hill. So on the plaque for the hot room, there's a quote. Do you know what the quote says or who it's from? Does it start with, but these are words? Uh, but words are things. But words are things, and a, and even a single drop of ink causes um, people to, but for a moment, think. That's maybe one-third of the correct word. <laughs> but yeah, still pretty good. Uh, but words are things, and a small drop of ink falling like dew upon a thought produces that which makes thousands, perhaps millions, think. Do you know what it's from? The fireplace in the hot room. <laughs> no, I, I don't know. Uh, George Gordon Byron from Don Juan, a satirical poem based on the legend of Don Juan in which Byron reverses portraying Juan as not a womanizer, but someone seduced by women. That is so fun, yeah. fun <laughs> fact. <laughs> To go with a satirical. It was basically, it seriously. yeah, it was basically like an English epic poem, and so that is what adorns the room. Can you imagine the conversation that the guys had in terms of deciding this is going to be the Oh, yeah. 100%. Yeah. Do you guys know what a crossbencher is? So this isn't actually a. Like not a Leona No, that is a bench crosser. <laughs> like someone who's cross? No. Okay. So this isn't a term that's used. It's used in the par- in many parliamentary systems, but not in Canada. Um, and there's a reason why it's not really used in Canada. And it has to do with... Is it your counterpart across the aisle, but they don't always line up? Okay, never mind. No. Nope. Is it someone who's, like, party flexible? No. Like a differing party identity? <laughs> Although that is an interesting concept. Um, no, in a lot of uh, legislatures, including... Uh, uh, I believe the British one. I don't know if it's the House of Lords or the or the their central chamber or their lower chamber, um, but it takes sort of a U shape, and so crossbenchers are the people in the middle of that U who are neither opposition nor government. That is where sort of the assorted third party MPs go, and in other systems they call them crossbenchers rather than third misfit parties. Toys. Yeah, the the okay. land of misfit toys. Um, so this is a, a fun historical one. Um, it likely happened before all of our times. Um, but there was a quote, uh, it's about trade and it goes like this and then I'll have you guess who said it. Yeah. I'm just trying to think of what the best way to ask this question is. Um, quote, Wayne Gretzky is a national symbol like the beaver, Pierre Berton and Harold Ballard. It's the wheel of fortune without Vanna White. They may as well have sent Wayne to the moon as sent him to L.A. Everyone knows that L.A. isn't a hockey town. Which parliamentary or which party? Let's start with which party do you think issued that as a press release? Conservatives. Conservatives? No, it was not the conservatives. Progressive conservatives? It was not. Well, that, that actually would have been more historically likely. Reform? It was not reform. Alliance? Who has classically been... Uh, af- afraid of free trade. The NDP. The NDP. Sorry, the <laughs> it actually wasn't because this was in the 90s, yeah. 80s, whenever Gretzky was traded, but they issued a press release uh, protesting the trade of Wayne Gretzky and believed that the government should step in. Although it was a little tongue-in-cheek, uh, so I'm told by the history books. Um, this is perhaps my favorite quote that I read in the Hill Times this year um, because... I'll explain the story afterwards. But which parliamentarian is referred to by one of his colleagues as, quote, Kevin from heaven? Kevin Lamaru. 
It is. And do you know who calls him that? No. Roger Kuzner calls him Kevin from Heaven. And the reason I had such a laugh was the last time I heard that was I was buying a $15 bed frame on Kijiji. And I went out to a sketchy part of town and the guy came out and introduced himself as Kevin from Heaven. And then I proceeded to go into his backyard and pick out a bed frame that was rusting in a pile. For the record, horrible bed frame, threw it out shortly thereafter. And not Kevin Lamarou. And, and it was not Kevin Lamarou. Okay. So a different Kevin from Heaven, there's at least two in Ottawa. Wow. Um, did you know there used to be a pub in Parliament? Did you? How, like, do you any idea when that shut down? I don't know when it shut down, but I do actually know one of the um, people who worked there. Now it's a restaurant in Ottawa. Um, but it was, I believe it wasn't actually, if I'm remembering correctly, not in Parliament Hill, but it was in the uh, National Press Gallery building. I could also not be. I had heard it was under the library. Yeah, like, well, no, I don't know that there was a secret passageway and, like, a uh, bookshelf. Have you have you guys ever been to Union 613? No. Have you ever been to the speakeasy room there? No. No, there. Okay, yes, worry. there. Did you know that was there? I did know, but I'm not going to talk about it. So the last time I was there, the washrooms are also downstairs, and I was walking down, and there's this one lady. I, I have no idea how much she'd had to drink, but she was sort of trapped in the basement because she was like, I'm sorry, I was just in a room, and there were people, and I don't know how to get back to it. And she was standing right outside the bookshelf. That was, in fact, a door, and and here you go. Completely bewildered by it. Um, so, no, I don't know when the pub in Parliament shut down. Much like the cats, these are things that we've lost to history. There also used to be a beer vending machine in Parliament. Oh, yeah? The, the proverbial good old days, eh? Yeah. So now's, now's the point in the episode where I ask you about the beers we've been drinking. Um, we've had two of incredibly different ends of the spectrum. Um, our first one was Collective Arts Jam Up the Mash, uh, previously Mash Up the Jam. And the other one is perhaps in my top five beers commonly available in Canada, commonly with a little asterisk on it, which is uh, Founders Breakfast Stout. Which one did you guys prefer? I love a good sour, so I would say that would be my choice. But this is lovely. This uh, founders is uh, a nice, smooth. Uh, Are is you, it a stout? It's a stout. Okay. Are you much of a stout drinker? Uh, in the winter, I become one. Okay, I don't. I don't believe in seasonal beers. I, I will drink this on a patio in the summer. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone else is drinking Coronas. I'm like, yeah, give me, give me a stout, please. Chocolate coffee, hit right. me. I mean, not to be extra, as the kids say, but it's double chocolate coffee oatmeal stout and it actually is all those things at the same time so it, i kind of loved it it's super good eh? yeah the, the sour was not bad it, it fits how many canadians feel about i don't know i i'm just <laughs> stuff. it was it was quite good <laughs> so this one is from hamilton ontario and that one is from michigan i think it's just outside of detroit um but it's one of the beers that you can get at the lcbo that is not awful in terms of imported beers, so no. my, my number one and my number two, those are both very good. Lovely afternoon. Um, yeah, that's it. That's all. We're at about an hour, so I will. Uh, I will say goodbye. All right. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. All the best for the new year. Bye bye.